is from Isaiah chapter 53. It can be be found on page 740 in the church Bibles. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading is taken from Romans chapter 5, and you can find that on page 1132 in your Bibles. Page 1132, Romans 5, verse 1 to 11. The title is Peace and Joy. 
Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if any of you noticed, but there were two screens up. I think that deserves a round of applause, doesn't it? Thank you, guys. Fantastic. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these two passages, really powerful passages about Christ's suffering for us. We ask your blessing on us this morning as we think about that. Please uh, use my mouth to speak words about you that are true and open our ears and our hearts that we might receive what you're saying to us this morning and respond to it. Amen. Now, I have to confess, I don't really understand man flu. I guess that's because I'm a man. But I can say that on one occasion in my life, I did once suffer something that was worse than a heavy cold. I was a student in um, a university and uh, I was lying in my student bed, in my student garret, and I was in misery. I was, I was sweating, and I was shivering, and because I'm a man, I thought I was going to die. And I was crying out for my mum to come and rescue me. And then through my haze of wretchedness and misery and suffering, the door opened and my mother walked into my room. I knew that I was safe. I knew that I would be looked after. Everything would be okay. My mother was there. I don't now remember how it felt to be in such pain and misery. But I do remember how it felt to see my mother walk through that door. 
Well, today we continue our mini-series on credible clues to a creator God. Last week, we thought about the, um, how despite the, uh, the instincts and the urgencies of, um, uh, of the survival of the fittest, nonetheless, throughout every culture across the world, the appearance of moral order has enabled us to build predictable and positive communities, pointing like a moral compass towards the magnetic pole of a creator God. We saw that the key questions for us to ask those who don't believe in God are, well, how do you think we should behave? Do you accept that we have a moral compass? And what does it point to, if not to God? Well, today, we're thinking about suffering and how that, too, can be a credible clue to a creator God. That's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? Usually, when we think about suffering, we're on the back foot. It's often the first question that we get asked. How can you possibly believe in a God of love in the face of all the suffering in the world? Sometimes it's asked aggressively towards us, sometimes dismissively, but sometimes it's wrung from the pain of personal anguish. If that's you, I hope that this morning you will hear the profound empathy for your situation which the Christian faith offers. We all share the pain of suffering. However that question gets asked, however that question gets asked, the widespread expectation, the widespread expectation, sorry, amongst atheists and Christians is that this is a rhetorical question. There is no answer. It is not, in fact, possible to believe in a God of love in the face of the suffering in the world. What goes unnoticed in that, though, is that it's hiding a quite different question, a question which the person posing that question is usually preferring not to think about. And it's this. So what better answer do you have? Suffering isn't going to go away just because you choose not to believe in God. So how do you endure the idea of suffering without a loving God to give you hope? There was a post-war German thinker called Moltmann who was reflecting on the horrors of the Nazi concentration camps and of those who were saying, I can't possibly believe in a God of love who could create a world as appalling as this. And then he realized that the anger that was inside that statement only made sense if there was a God to shout that question at. It would be like saying, I am so cross with my GP, I don't believe he exists. It doesn't make sense to be angry with somebody who doesn't exist. Moltmann called this protest atheism. It's not so much disbelief as a shout of pain. And having a good old shout can be really helpful for us when we are suffering. But deciding that there's no one to shout at actually makes the shouting rather pointless. As one Christian leader 
whose son committed suicide has remarked, people ask me if this has destroyed my faith in God. I'm not sure why. It's not as, the, as if those who don't believe in God have a better answer to the pain that I feel. So, in a world of pain, what bits of evidence, as we were hearing last week, what bits of evidence are there for a good creator God? Well, the answer that I want to give you comes in three parts. The first part is the value of suffering. Suffering is important. This confronts head-on the problem of suffering, and it offers pointers to why suffering itself might show us evidence of love. I guess most people who don't believe in God wouldn't accept these pointers as being valid. But they do re reinforce the question, well, can you give a better reason for suffering in the world? The ideas that I'm going to come up with aren't my own. So they don't rely on my experience of suffering, which isn't, to be honest, that great. They are answers which Christians have discovered within the anvil of their own suffering over 2,000 years. And between them, billions of Christians have suffered exponentially more than I can imagine. So here is the first pointer, that suffering arises from freedom of choice. Okay, so here we are. My children are playing together. They're having a good time. I love them. I can supply all their needs. I've got a great plan for today, which I know that they're really going to enjoy. Actually, I've got a present for each one of them, and I know that they will enjoy that present more than what I give to the others. But they're still fighting over nothing at all. I want that. Dad loves you more than me. I hate you. Even if we can create a perfect world where nothing decays and everyone is happy and everyone has what they need, we'll still have suffering unless we can take away the choice to react selfishly and hurtfully. But the question is, do I value, do I give value to my children more by locking them up and taking away from them the possibility of, taking, of making bad choices or by trusting them to choose well? If you remember it, the film Matrix gives us our answer. I should have asked Adam for a more recent film. We all, in the end, want to have the choice to fight our own battles and make our own choices, even if that means making our own mistakes. The very fact that we can treat others in bad ways means one of two things. It either means a world of chance where we have no value, or a creator who values us so highly that he allows us to make choices, including bad ones, and therefore to suffer. So suffering is actually a possible evidence of a creator who creates independent life which can make its own choices. That's the first pointer. The second pointer is this, that suffering allows sacrifice. 
the argument goes a step further. If we have value by being able to choose, we can also give value to others by choosing their good rather than our own. If love is more than just a, an insignificant magnetic attraction, it's because of this. It's because we can suffer for the sake of the one we love. Nobody suffers in a computer game, and nobody loves either. So, in the suffering of this broken world, we discover the meaning of sacrifice and of love, another piece of evidence for a good creator God. Thirdly, suffering shows us what's wrong. If this world were perfect, there would be no need for pain. But whilst things are not yet right, pain is vitally important for us as a sign that something needs to change. We don't like being hurt, of course, and we might wish that we never felt pain, that we were anesthetized against it. But what would it be like if that were so? That is the whole problem with leprosy. Or as somebody after the first service came up and told me afterwards, with a situation of her sister-in-law, I think, who, who, was, um, who had no feeling from her waist downwards. No physical pain there. And because there's no pain, there's no urgent physical warning to pull our hand out from the flame or to protect our feet or to dress our wounds. And then we start to lose our fingers and our toes and our hands because we haven't done anything about it. The pain tells us that something has gone wrong and we need to do something about it. Those who don't feel pain are much worse off. Pain turns out to be a credible clue to the creator God who cares for us enough to give us an early warning system when something is wrong so that we can help to put it right. As Paul says, the whole of creation feels pain at the moment and that is a sign that creation is not yet as it should be. Actually, these thoughts, these pointers, all stem from the fact that we live in a world which wasn't designed to last forever, and nor were we. I know we all want to, but this isn't the world for it. If it were, we'd either have denser and denser population, so in the end, nobody could even breathe, or there'd be no children. And I expect, after 10,000 years, we'd have got rather tired and bored. Think about it. But if this world is just a doorway, but then I'm getting ahead of myself. So given that this world is temporary and does include suffering, how do we use suffering? And what does that tell us about a creator God? What is the usefulness of suffering? Well, firstly, suffering makes us stronger. That's the whole principle of physical exercise, isn't it? I mean, I don't really understand that, not really doing any, but I'm told that pressing through the pain barrier is what makes us fitter and more resilient. And it certainly works with our emotions and our character too. We heard that from St. Paul in our reading. Suffering gives us endurance, and endurance gives us character. Well, secondly, suffering makes us inventive as well. 
We work hard and we get creative to make life better for ourselves and for others. That's how inventions happen. That's how medical discoveries happen. So many inventions are to solve problems. Last month, uh, an unknown guy called Dr. Stuart Adams died. In the 60s, this humble boots chemist spent 10 years failing to create pain relief specifically for rheumatoid arthritis. Until the day he invented ibuprofen. Suffering makes us inventive. Suffering also makes us compassionate. Care comes about because of the suffering of others. So many carers in the world, we see the suffering of other people and it moves us. Our hearts are softened and our determination increases to care for them, to help them, to look after them. We read of someone's plight and we make a donation or we work to make their world better. Suffering makes us compassionate. Suffering also shows how much we care. The more we love, the more we're willing to suffer. And conversely, the other way around, the more someone suffers for us, the more we know that they care. The very fact that we feel agony over the death of a child or a spouse or a parent shows that we love them. Suffering shows how much we care. So suffering makes us stronger, it makes us more inventive, it makes us more compassionate, and it shows how much we care. These are all bits of evidence that suffering was part of a plan, that a caring creator God included suffering in his creation for a purpose. And not because he's wicked or impotent or non-existent. So let me ask my atheist friend the question again. If suffering contains such intrinsic value and it can be used in such powerful ways, even though it hurts, that it's a credible clue to the Creator God, how do you explain suffering in a better way in a world without God? So we've heard that suffering might not be pointless and it might have an essential value and it can be useful, but does it have a finish? Does it come to an end? Is this all that's in store for us, slogging our way through suffering until we're put out of our misery? Well, a Christian faith offers us something much more, and that is the transformation of suffering. I can think of at least six ways that the Creator God, through His Son Jesus, transforms our suffering. You may be able to think of more. And the first is that He is present with us in our suffering. Let's go back to my first story. You'll remember I said, I don't now remember how the suffering felt, but I do remember how it felt to see my mother when I needed her. That's that's how it is when we meet Jesus. Through him, God delivers to us the promise, I am with you in your suffering. I care about you. The angel called Jesus Emmanuel, which means God is with us. 
Knowing my mum was there changed my small misery. Knowing Jesus is with us changed all our much worse sufferings. Some of you will remember the poem about um, a man who dreams that he has, um, he has been walking down a beach with Jesus and there two sets of foot, footsteps go down the beach. But at each rocky and dreadful place along that journey, suddenly there is only one step of footprints. And he protests to Jesus that he has been left alone in those worst moments of his life. But he receives the reply, my son, I love you and I am always with you. In those moments when you only saw one set of footprints, that was when I picked you up and carried you. Jesus is present with us in all of our sufferings. But more than that, the story of Jesus shows us that God actually, in Jesus, suffers with us. That changes things even more. Like a doctor who, who won't leave um, a plague city until everything, un, until the last patient has been, has been cured, has been healed and cared for. Even though that doctor knows that he is likely, he or she is likely risking catching the disease themselves. Jesus knew that coming amongst us, he too would share our suffering. He identified with us so that we could know that he's with us in our pain. And he did that by sharing the pain with us. I had a friend long ago who suffered excruciating pain. She said to us, I really do appreciate your empathy, your sympathy for me. But in the end, you are all the other side of this wall of fire, this wall of pain that I feel. There's only one person who's with me inside the pain, and that's Jesus. So Jesus is present with us in our pain. He suffers with us in our pain. But he's also helping us in our pain. The experience of those who met Jesus was that he wasn't only with them in their current suffering, but he could do something about it. He could stop or change it. That didn't take away the potential for future suffering, but it showed that he was a healer and that healing was on God's heart. Fourthly, and this is where it gets really exciting, Jesus didn't just share, show he cared enough to be with us or to suffer with us or to want to stop our suffering. He took our suffering onto himself. He suffered for us. Isaiah says that again and again in that amazing passage that we heard. He carried our sorrows. He was crushed for our iniquities. He bore the sins of many. Here's the climax. It comes in verse 5. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus suffered for us to take away our suffering. 
as Paul says in our second reading, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, that's kind, but it's only significant if it delivers something to us, which it does. And the evidence for that comes after the crucifixion. By rising from the dead, Jesus showed us death wasn't the final nail in the coffin, as it were. It was a doorway to new life. In his risen body, Jesus demonstrated a new world beyond the suffering of pain and death. And so Paul says, we have hope. And this hope doesn't disappoint us. There is one more important thing that Jesus shows us in his resurrection. When the disciples met him, they saw his wounds, but Jesus was no longer in pain. In fact, those wounds in his hand from his crucifixion had become something wonderful. They were signs of his life and his joy. Joy turning our suffering to joy. That's a word the disciples use again and again of their experience of their life with the risen Jesus. We heard Paul just now say, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Isn't that astonishing? We rejoice in our sufferings because they remind us that we have hope. And so we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whose sufferings we have now received reconciliation. Well, this isn't what you'd expect to hear from people who are being ridiculed and beaten and tortured and killed, as the early disciples were. But it is what Jesus expected telling them how the next day he was going to be dying in agony, he said to them, you are going to experience shattering pain like a woman in labor. But after that, your grief will be turned to joy. I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And so it was. Jesus, risen from the death, met his disciples. And they were, as one of the disciples wrote, they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Because the power of death was so clearly broken, they could rejoice amidst the temporary, suffering, death-bound world, knowing that there's an even better world to come. The last pages of the Bible contain this amazing description of God's new world. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with mankind, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, 
I am making everything new. This creator God is so good that though we experience suffering in this temporary world, God gives to that suffering value by allowing us the freedom to choose what causes it, by making it the touchstone of loving sacrifice. And he makes that suffering useful by using it as an early warning that all is not yet right, and by allowing it to strengthen our character, our creativity, and our compassion as we combat it. But most importantly, he transforms that suffering by being beside us and with us in it, by helping us through it, and then by taking it up and bearing it for us, and by offering a hope beyond suffering, that suffering itself will be turned into joy. The God who can take even crucifixion and turn it into resurrection is a God who can be trusted to take any suffering of ours, now, no matter how great, and to transform it too. So, we posed the question at the beginning, how can we believe in a God of love in the face of so much suffering? Well, here is my final question in response. If suffering contains such intrinsic value, and if it can be useful in such powerful ways, even though it hurts, and sometimes it hurts terribly, that it is a credible clue nonetheless to a good creator God. And if we know that suffering isn't the end of the story, but that that same creator God comes to us in our suffering to care for us, to share it with us, to help us in it, and to bear it for us, so as to welcome us to a world that he will create where suffering isn't just in the past, but has been transformed into joy if, because of Jesus, we Christians have hope for eternal joy through and beyond suffering, then how do you explain suffering in a better way that gives you more hope in your world without God? Let's take a moment's silence now. If at the beginning you were asking that question, how can I believe in a God of love in the face of my suffering? And if anything that I have said has touched you in your head or in your heart, why not mention it to God now? We would love to pray with you after the service in the tent over there. But just for this moment, we will all hold together that suffering in a moment of silence. Alternatively, if you were wondering how to give others an answer to that question about God and suffering, why don't we 
pray our theme verse together out loud. Here it is on the screen. Lord, help your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.